Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Well, welcome back to you who call Bible Center Church your home. It's always great to gather and to go deep into God's Word together. Love having you here, especially during this time of year. Uh, we want to welcome you if you're new. If you're new with us, we would love to have you become part of our circle of spiritual friends. Uh, if you're new to Bible Center, they've already told you what to do. I'll also be out in the lobby. would love to meet you and welcome you in uh, to our family. Thank you for being here. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And today I want to begin by asking you just a simple question. Would you say that your life is mostly ordinary or your life is extraordinary or extraordinary? Would you say your life is ordinary or extraordinary? You know, studying for this message this week, it became apparent just how ordinary my life really is. Um, I was thinking through just a typical day. I get up about the same time every day, and the first thing I do every morning is I step on the scale Uh, crawl out of bed, go to the bathroom, step on the scale, and depending on what that tells me determines whether or not I go to the gym that morning uh, before work, and so I'm going to try to be a little more faithful than that in the new year, but then I come back from the gym, make sure I take my medicine and eat breakfast, do a little bit of reading, get a shower, uh, make sure the girls are off to school. Now that we've got a driver in our family, that's not as hard as it used to be. Make sure the girls are off to school. And then I try to get into work about 8.30 or so uh, on a typical morning. Work to about 5.30 each day. Go home about 5.30, eat dinner, hang out with the family for a little while. If I get the remote before Sarah gets the remote, then I try to watch you know, something I want to watch, like a documentary or, on uh, Gettysburg. I'm currently in that Netflix right now. Or maybe The Office. If she gets the remote first, we're watching Frasier or HGTV, something of that nature. But um, no, just kidding. She always gives me the remote, um, making sure I clear the air there. But then usually I play with my dog every night. Uh, we wrestle. He expects it. I expect it. And then we go to bed, babe, well, like 9, 9.30, about the same time every night and get up the next morning and do it all again. Our life is very ordinary. You know, this week while studying for this message, I, I looked up the word ordinary and I found three definitions, two of which I love, one of which I don't like. Here are the first two definitions that I love. Ordinary, being part of the natural order of things, normal, customary, routine. Having no special characteristics or function, everyday, common, or mundane. But this particular definition disturbed me. In our society, as language continues to change, the word ordinary is beginning to mean bad or undesirable. Bad or undesirable. And that concerns me on multiple levels, and so I wanted to preach a message this morning entitled, Jesus is a Gift to Ordinary People, and show us that being ordinary is totally, absolutely okay. You know, as far as Christianity is concerned, it seems as if maybe we've kind of bought into the notion uh, that everything has to be mega in order for it to be good. In other words, we have mega conferences and we have mega movements and we have mega churches and mega evangelists. But actually, it is okay for someone not to be mega, for us just to be ordinary. 
Also, individually, sometimes we have a tendency to compare ourselves with people around us. If only I was like them. If I was more special like so-and-so, I wouldn't be so ordinary. Well, I want to relieve you of all of that today and show you, again, the title of the message is Jesus is a Gift to Ordinary People. So if you take your Bible or your Bible app and look with me at the book of Luke chapter 2, we're going to find ordinary shepherds in the Christmas story. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible? Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke 2, 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what, he had been, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you find outlines helpful, like I do, I encourage you to follow along with your outline on the back of the bulletin. You can also check out the outline in the app. You can fill in the blank. Uh, today's message can be divided up into three sections. First of all, we're going to look at who Jesus is. Then secondly, we're going to see who Jesus saves. And thirdly, we're going to see who Jesus uses. Who Jesus is, who Jesus saves, and who Jesus uses. And then I'm going to conclude uh, with an application that will help us all apply it to our lives. There's a book recommendation also in your outline or in the bulletin. Uh, feel free to check that out. I think it'll be an encouragement to you. Number one, Jesus came to earth as an ordinary person. Jesus came to earth as an ordinary person. I preach a lot about how Jesus is fully God, but I haven't preached as much about how he is also fully human. He's not 50% God and 50% human, but he's actually 100% God and 100% human. But he came to earth as an ordinary person. Jesus was born into a world of taxes and census. As Ms. Schaefer just read just a little bit ago, uh, when Jesus came into the world, there was a very real emperor. There was a very real census, and there was a very, very, very real taxes. That's one of the things I love about the Bible and how practical and specific it is. It just tells us as things were. This past week, I was reading one of the letters from Ben Franklin. He wrote in 1789, and he said, this is where we get the famous phrase, there are only two things certain in life. What are they? 
death and taxes. Uh, Our daughter, our oldest daughter, uh, just started working for Michael's here a few months ago. And so if you need some craft supplies, you know where to go, at least until Hobby Lobby opens up. Um, And and so she's got a lot of great stories, especially around the Christmas time. And, And the other day I was talking to her, probably forgetting that she's almost 17. And I was using phrases like mommy and daddy and things like that. And trying to, I was talking down to her, which I'm really trying to stop doing. And she looked right at me and she said, dad, you don't have to talk to me that way. I pay taxes now. (laughs) Jesus was born into a very ordinary world of taxes. Secondly, we see he was born to ordinary parents. He was born to ordinary parents. Joseph and Mary exemplified extraordinary faith, but they were ordinary Jewish people. Joseph was a carpenter. Mary was probably at least 16 years old when Jesus was born. In chapter 3, Luke takes great pains to show Jesus' ancestry. And Jesus comes from a long line of ordinary men and women. In chapter 4, we see Jesus' hometown. His neighbors were surprised when Jesus finally declared that he essentially was the Messiah. They were surprised. And in Luke chapter 4, they said, is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son? It shows the ordinary life that Jesus lived. Occasionally in Christianity, you'll hear rumors or traditions that Jesus did miracles when he was a little child and, you know, he turned birds into chocolate and all these things. Uh, but the Bible never says any of that. This Bible seems to indicate that he did have lived a very ordinary, normal life. Thirdly, we see that although he was conceived extraordinarily, he was born in the ordinary way. Though he was conceived extraordinarily, he was born in the ordinary way. We see this in verses 6 and 7. No doubt the conception of Christ was absolutely supernatural. It was spiritual. The Holy Spirit uh, allowed Mary to, be, to conceive a child. There's no need for us to, to read some kind of sensuality into the passage, uh, but just that this was a miracle. This was of God. But as we read Luke chapter 2, though the conception was supernatural, there is nothing that seems supernatural about the birth. In other words, maybe God gave her some kind of extra grace that he's never given any other mother in order to have this baby, but we're not told that. From all we know, Mary suffered from the same pains of childbirth uh, that you ladies, many of you ladies, have suffered. We're not told otherwise. It reminds me of when Sarah and I took Lamaze classes before Katie was born. Uh, We lived down in Charlotte, and so we took Lamaze classes from UNC Charlotte. And uh, I remember telling the nurse before she was born, just confidently, I was 22 years old, telling the nurse, hey, we've taken Lamaze classes. We've got this. And the nurse just like, poor thing, poor thing. It didn't take me long to realize that, no, I didn't. Sarah did. I didn't have anything. Uh, One of my friends, after his wife gave birth to their first child, he said, one of my friends from college says that he he told his wife how exhausted he was just by being there for the birth. And she told him, she said, if I had a gun, I would shoot you. (laughs) Very ordinary, okay? So Jesus' birth was ordinary. Though fully God, he grew all the way or the way all ordinary kids grow. Though he was fully God, Jesus grew the way all ordinary kids grow. 
We see it in verse 40, and I didn't put it in your notes, but you want to check out verse 52, for it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus had to grow just like your children had to grow. We see these four categories in this verse. He had to grow mentally. He had to grow physically. He had to grow spiritually. And he had to grow socially. According to Philippians chapter 2, Jesus willingly subjected himself to this. It wasn't like he was doing calculus, you know, at eight months of age. Jesus had to learn just like we had to learn. He came to earth as an ordinary person. But number two, Jesus loves to save ordinary people. One of the messages of the shepherds it shows us that Jesus loves to save ordinary people. We'll come back to this story in a moment, but in Luke chapter 4, Jesus declares his mission statement. He goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. It would be like you going back to the church where you were raised as a kid. He goes back to a synagogue and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah, which is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus declares his mission. He says at age 30, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He summarizes this. Luke summarizes it again in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 when Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save whom? the lost. I've come to seek and to save the lost. The whole life of Jesus, actually the entire theme of the Bible, is a rescue mission of God saving and restoring his people. You know that you were actually created to have fellowship, to have a close relationship with God? Some people call it the God-sized hole in your heart. That's probably being a little liberal uh, with the Bible. But there is this sense, there's this consciousness where we're created in the image of God to have a relationship with the Lord and with one another. God created us this way. We see it at Christmas time. But something else we see at Christmas time is that sin has broken all of us. It's broken all of us. Not only is the world broken by sin around us, but actually we're broken inside of us. That conflict that you're having right now at home, that argument that you got into on the way to church, which you know you put on the smile when you walk in the front door and pretended like everything was okay, but all the arguing from home to that point, you see it inside of you. The fighting and fussing at Christmas time, the the selfishness that comes out sometimes in our children or in our own hearts, all of that is the result of us being broken by sin. But the Bible tells us God didn't leave us in that state. Jesus came to save us. If you say, why did Jesus come? Yes, it was for the glory of the Father. But Jesus' own words in Luke 4 and Luke 19 was this, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came after you even before you ever came after him. The shepherd always seeks the sheep. The sheep never seek the shepherd first. Jesus came looking for you on a rescue mission. He died on the cross for your sin and for mine. He was buried and he rose the third day. 
And Jesus not only offers to save you, but when you put your faith in Christ, you believe in him. Sometimes the Bible says when you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, this transformation process starts. The gospel isn't the finish line for the Christian, but the gospel is the starting line for the Christian. As you read through the New Testament, do you know that every every chapter, every book in your New Testament was written primarily to Christians? Every single one. And when you read the New Testament, you're going to find the writers like Peter and John and Paul declaring the gospel to Christians. You say, well, Pastor Matt, when are we going to move past the gospel? I mean, you know, when are we going to move past it? I'm ready to move on past the gospel. Someone who says that hasn't truly grasped the emphasis of the New Testament. For the New Testament over and over again says, the gospel is to you, Christian. Think with me about the quintessential gospel text, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, moreover, I declare unto you the gospel which you have received and in which you stand. Paul says, by which you are saved. If you keep in memory the gospel, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. When I was an evangelist, I was an evangelist for about five and a half years. I wasn't one of those big haired evangelists, but I was an evangelist. And that was funnier in my mind. But um, So when I was an evangelist, I would preach that passage all the time to unbelievers. And that's okay. I mean, the scriptures, the scriptures. But do you know that the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is to Christians? After 14 chapters of Paul writing to this church who had problems with division, chapters 1 through 3, they had marriage problems, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. Uh, they had morality problems, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8. They had division, more division with the use of their spiritual gifts in the church. This church was a mess. After all this mess, he says, moreover, brothers, Christians, I declare to you the gospel. In other words, the way you change is not by brute force. The way you're transformed after you put your faith in Christ is not because you learn a code of morality that's somehow hidden in the Greek language. The way you change and grow and transform is by getting close to Christ and understanding more of the gloriousness of his gospel and understanding what he did for you. And when you get to know that gospel, he says you begin to change from the inside out. And so Jesus transforms as part of the gospel. And then one day God's going to restore all things. What is our ultimate hope as Christians? Is our ultimate hope that we're going to somehow transform enough that one day we're just going to like live a sin-free, suffering-free life on this earth? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, not in this life. The Bible actually says our only hope is resurrection. That's why the apostles emphasize resurrection so much. They actually emphasize Easter more than they emphasize Christmas. And I'm so thankful we're making a big deal about Christmas, but you hang on till spring, we're going to make a bigger deal about Easter because that's the emphasis of the New Testament is resurrection. One day God is going to make all things new. But in the book of Luke, Luke highlights different kinds of people for whom Jesus came. 
And I love it because in the early church, as they were sitting there with, with no printed Bibles, at least most of them didn't have the printed Bible at that time, or the copied Bible, as they're sitting there listening to people share the stories of Jesus and read the scrolls of the Old Testament, the early church needed reminded that Jesus came to save ordinary people. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the people that Luke highlights. The ESV study Bible says it really, really well. Luke highlights the great reversal taking place in the world in which the first are becoming last and the last are becoming first. The proud are being brought low and the humble are being exalted. Luke places great emphasis on God's love for the poor, tax collectors, outcasts, sinners, women, Samaritans, and Gentiles. In keeping with this concern, many of the episodes that appear only in Luke's gospel feature the welcome of an outcast, the Christmas shepherds, the prodigal son, the persistent widow, and Zacchaeus. Particularly in the first few chapters of Luke, we see Jesus saving some ordinary people. I'm just going to highlight a few for you. First of all, he saves simple shepherds. Jesus loves to save simple shepherds. Sometimes we get the picture that shepherds had these perfectly clean, fluffy, cotton ball-covered sheep, and that they were like some great hero like David was in the Old Testament. But actually, by the time of Jesus, it was the exact opposite. Shepherding, first of all, is a very dirty job, very smelly job. Anybody know a shepherd? I mean, like the context for us is a little hard. Like most of us don't have a friend in Huntington who's shepherds. But, um, but this is what shepherding would have looked like and still looks like. But shepherds were considered lowest of the lowest class in Jewish society. Because of their handling of animals and their dirty lifestyle, they weren't permitted into the temple to offer sacrifice. One philosopher in Alexandria, Egypt, said there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. They cannot be trusted. They are brute, thieving, deplorable men who prefer the company of animals to community life. One of the early Jewish documents, not in the Old Testament, but one of their documents called the Mishnah from the first century, it was part of their written record of laws that they had made up, reads this. Shepherds are incompetent. No one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. That's pretty, it's pretty specific. They didn't have a high view of the view. Their testimony wasn't, wasn't admissible in the court of law. So the shepherds were the least likely people for God to reveal and declare the story of the birth of a Savior. But you see, what God did is He's turning the world upside down. Jesus came to save simple shepherds. Jesus also came to save ordinary senior saints. Ordinary senior saints. We see it later on in chapter 2. In verses 25 through 35, we see an older man named Simeon who in, in the latter years of his life was waiting on Jesus and he holds Jesus up. He says, this child is my salvation. In verses 36 through 38 of Luke chapter 2, we see an elderly woman named Anna. We don't know exactly how old she was. One translation says 84. Another translation says she's uh, 84 plus 7, make her 91. No one knows for sure because the wording is a little bit obscure, but she was an elderly woman. But Anna, when she held Jesus up, said, this child is my redemption. If you're a senior saint, take heart. 
Jesus came to save ordinary senior saints. Jesus came to save ordinary sinners. We, we see it throughout the book of Luke, but I love the story in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus was going to eat and drink with sinners. It infuriated the Pharisees. It specifically said he went to eat and drink with the Pharisees, or the, the sinners. It made the Pharisees so mad. Why was Jesus going to the places they were going? Why was he hanging out with such a disreputable crowd? Why wasn't he distancing himself more from that which the Pharisees deemed to be ungodly? And we know Jesus never sinned, but Jesus loved and lived with people that we may find it difficult to love and live with. And I love what Jesus said in Luke 5. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We also see in the book of Luke, Jesus came to save ordinary soldiers. If you're in the military, take heart, be encouraged. The early church needed this encouragement. Uh, We see even in the gospels that there was this massive wave of this influx of people from the Roman army, these men who had become followers of Jesus. And in the first century, they're sitting in the churches and people in the church were a little bit skeptical. Like, are these people coming to rat us out? Are they gonna hurt us? Are they spies? And so it was hard for them to immediately receive someone from the Roman army. And so Luke writes his gospel, and he reminds them at least twice, as does the other gospel writers, that Jesus saves soldiers too. I love the story in Luke 7, where Jesus says to a centurion, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Jesus loves to save ordinary soldiers. He also loves to save ordinary sick people. Almost every chapter from chapter four on reveals Jesus healing not only physically, but also spiritually the sick. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals a man with leprosy in chapter five, a man with a diseased or withered hand in chapter six. He raises a widow's son at a funeral in chapter seven. In chapter eight, we see Jesus raise a 12-year-old girl back to life And he healed a woman who suffered with menstrual bleeding for 12 straight years. Jesus loves to save ordinary people. But lastly, thankfully, Jesus also loves to use ordinary people. We see it in the story of the shepherds and throughout the entire book of Luke. Jesus loves to use ordinary people. Look back with me in verse 17. Back in verse 17, the shepherds have have seen Jesus. Now what do they do? Luke 2, 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now think with me for a minute. I've never fully grasped this until this week. The only people, according to the Bible, the only people who saw the angels, heard the angels sing, and saw the light from heaven were the shepherds. Now there may have been more, but the Bible doesn't tell us there were more. The Bible only says of all the people, of all the nobles, all the princes, all the people who saw the light, saw the angels, and heard the singing, only the shepherds are recorded as having experienced it. 
So now the shepherds turn and they go and tell everybody else. So think of this. The shepherds got the angels, the song, and the light. Guess what everybody else got? Shepherds. Smelly, illiterate men. That's what they got. They got the shepherds. But you see, that's what we see it in the gospel of Luke. That's how God works. God loves to use smelly people to spread his word. That's the kind of savior that we serve. And he loves to use ordinary people in ordinary ways. One of my favorite books is a book entitled Total Church by Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. And in that book, it says, most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. This week, I read a quote from 125 or 8125. I've got to share it with you. It's not a long quote, uh, but it was a philosopher. His name was Aristides. Aristides was a, an advisor to the emperor Hadrian. If you're familiar with Hadrian's Wall in England, this is that Hadrian. Uh, so he was an advisor to the emperor, and the emperor wanted a status update on this new group called the Way, the Christians. And so translated into English, in 125 AD, this is what Aristides wrote to the emperor. Think of this. Further, if one or other of the Christians, them, have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. Our emphasis this year is making spiritual friends. That's not a new emphasis. That's been around for 2,000 years. They love one another, and from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit of God. I love this. And whenever one of their poor, this is about funerals, whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of Jesus, or he says their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. This is why our vision is to saturate the city with the gospel. Our mission is to produce more maturing followers of Christ. But we believe that if we do that over a period of time long enough, that eventually God can use our little church here in the south side of Charleston to saturate the city with the gospel. That's our vision. And we believe we'll do that the way Jesus did through gospel words and through gospel works. That since people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care, that's why we're doing some of the things that we're doing. In the new year, we're going to share a little bit more about what we're doing. I would encourage you, stick with us. Continue to attend. Join us here in person as you're able and see what the Lord could use you to do. 
the Maker Center is almost up and running. You can see it on our homepage. It's an innovative, gospel-centered approach. Inspiring local residents to imagine a brighter future. This past week, I learned that someone donated a car to our Maker Center because our Maker Center actually has a teacher who's donated her time, a retired driving instructor, that's going to help people in our city who've lost their license, but who are now able to get their licenses back. She's volunteered her time to teach them and how to get their license back. When somebody found out we were getting a car, somebody else donated that brake. You know that brake that goes on the passenger side that all of you wish you had when you were teaching your kids to drive? We've got one of those. You're part of a church that has one of those. We'll rent it out to you for a good price. We've got a wood shop at the Maker Center. We've got uh, computers that have a programs that our kids in Canal County Schools are required to learn. And so two weeks ago, the teachers from Mary C. Snow came over to your Maker Center, Bible Center Church's Maker Center, to learn this program. We have ladies who've volunteered their time to teach floral design. And Michelle's talked to several of the florists in town who said, we'll hire these people once they learn this skill. We have men who want to teach other men and women mechanic skills. Do we believe that somehow mechanic skills are going to save the city? No. But we do believe they'll create gospel relationships and allow us to love people like Jesus and eventually see people come to Christ. That's why we're doing the foster closet. It's a place down in Cross Lanes. If you haven't checked it out, you want to check it out. Donna Lucas and her team, they've got a Facebook page. You can get involved. If you ask if you can donate something, the answer is always yes. They're just doing amazing work. That's why this week I received a text from a friend here in Charleston. And, and she works here in the city. And one of her co-workers was in need of food. And she said, where can, was there a food bank that I could send her to, a reputable food bank? She'd helped her all that she could. And it was able to say that you, Bible Center Church, heavily supports Charleston Mountain Mission. And we gave her the name of the lady to see at Charleston Mountain Mission to get food for her family. Never have I been more excited about Union Mission's new behavioral health center on Monday, I preached a funeral down at Barlow and Bonsall, and Deb Weinstein from the YWCA and Sojourners, as she stopped me after the funeral, and she said, tell your church, tell your church that what they're doing is making a difference in the city. And so I want to tell you, church, that what you're doing is making a difference in the city. I know we got to be done soon, but how was at Walmart yesterday? And I tried to get to Walmart early because it was my job to make breakfast and I didn't want to get dressed and cleaned up. I didn't wear my pajamas. I don't do that, but I didn't brush my teeth, and it was early, and I thought, I'm not going to see anybody. Well, about 15 of you were there, and I saw you, and I'm walking down one particular aisle, and I saw one of you there, and you started telling me, you started telling me the joy it is for you to be a part of a church that can use your spiritual gifts, one of you told me that you've never been involved in construction before, don't know really what, what construction even is, but you've been helping with our hammer and nails team build decks for some of our widows and steps and ramps for some of our senior saints. And one of our dear ladies just hugged me around the neck, bad breath and all, just to say, I love what God is doing at our church. 
Our vision is to saturate the city with the gospel. But guess what? God uses ordinary people to do it. He's not looking for superstars. He's looking for ordinary, available people. This Christmas, let God use your ordinary self to do extraordinary things. This Christmas, let God do use your ordinary self to do extraordinary things. God put you on this earth for a reason. You've only got one life this side of heaven. Use it. Use it up. You say, Pastor man, I'm afraid of burning out. Don't be afraid of burning out. Be more afraid of rusting out. Ask the Lord to use you for his kingdom. Now's the time. We've got an app where you can actually, this morning before you leave, you can go ahead and sign up to serve in some area. Uh, they give you a whole menu. I went there this morning, a whole menu, if you click on Connect, where you can volunteer to serve. If you've got something that you'd like to serve in that's not listed there, go ahead and just write it in. Uh, we'd love to help you get plugged in with one of our teams and serving our city. Uh, if you're not really sure yet about the app, stop by and see Jane after the service. She's out of the Connect table. Jane would love to get you plugged in and that God might use you and your ordinary self with our ordinary selves to make a difference and saturate our city with the gospel. Why are we so passionate about this? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Jesus came to earth as an ordinary person. Jesus loves to save ordinary people. And Jesus loves to use ordinary people. This Christmas, let God use your ordinary self to do extraordinary things. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you so much for our church family. And Lord, though this Christmas we do want to celebrate the season, celebrate our Savior, I pray that you would help us to leave today more burdened than ever, not just to receive, but to give our lives away. I pray that a hundred years from now, that if Jesus tarries, though they won't know our names, and maybe the name of our church will have changed by then, I pray that they would be able to write of a gospel movement that transformed a city because ordinary people like us allowed you to do extraordinary things. Lord, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, Thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.